welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm your host, Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, I speak to Aryan Mo'ayed, an Iranian-American actor who you probably know as Stui Hosseini, this Iranian-American billionaire on the HBO TV series Succession. I'll talk to Aryan about his role in various TV series, his plays and shows on Broadway, and this non-profit theater company that he runs called Waterwell. Aryan joins me from New York today. Aryan, welcome to the Iran Podcast. Thank you, Negarjan. I am so glad to be here. I know it's been a while. Th- We've been trying to make this work for a while, but I'm glad that it's happening. It's been a year. I know, I know. I'm so excited. I was so excited, and um, I'm so glad that you could join us. Please. And we can talk about all these amazing projects that you're doing. I'm a big fan of <laughs> Studio Hosseini on Succession. <laughs> I'm very up-to-date on every episode. So let's start by talking about Studio. Um, it's a very interesting your role. He's a billionaire. I know you're not. So uh-huh. there must have been some challenge in creating the role, how you were casted for this role and how you sort of created it for yourself. Talk about this experience as Tui Hosseini playing this billionaire Iranian mm. on an American television show. I mean... You know, it's, it's, I kind of think that Stewie Husseini is kind of m- me without any empathy. <laughs> like, just take all the care and all of the, the, the you know, the, the kindness that we have for one another as Iranians, really. And that portion of it has been turned off, which makes me feel like he's, you know, it's funny. People always are like, you know, Iranians know that he's Iranian. But Americans don't know that he's Iranian, and they're always like mm. shocked that he's Iranian. And I kind of like love that about the show because what defines Stewie is not him being Iranian. What defines him is that he is very good at making money, and very good at the power that he wants to, you know, wield over everyone. Um, yeah, what happened? You know, the truth is, you, I auditioned for the pilot of the show. I didn't get it. And I had this idea for this one, you know, Bajense, you know, but also like amazing, you know, incredibly charismatic hedge fund, you know, D-bag, really. And um, I auditioned for the pilot and I didn't get it. And it, I didn't, it wasn't right. And then they come back a year later. I was doing the show on Broadway called The Humans. Um, and I had been doing it for like a year at that time. And um, I think a lot of the people from Succession saw the show and they kind of asked me to come back. And I really was like, you know, I have one idea for these hedge fund guys and I did it for the pilot. I don't know if this is like, you know, I don't know if this it was worthwhile to even go back in. But then, you know, they, you know, managers and agents and all that like, yeah, you should totally audition again. And I basically came up with this guy that I think is so, you know, there's so much energy that's happening with the Roy family. There's so much of them running and screaming and yelling and, you know, all that atashkhal, as we say in Farsi, <laughs> all that garbage. And, and But Stewie has to come in and he's got to be a cool, collected customer. And um, and the other thing is, I think he's they've known each other for a long time. You know, Jer, you know um, Kendall and Stewie have known each other. So Stewie doesn't have to, like, bow down to all of the, you know, millionaire, billionaire, gajillionaire, like, lifestyle that he has. He's seen it his whole life. He just sees him as a friend. So there releases a little bit of that tension that, you know, Stewie's not scared. And also, I think Stewie is more self-made than the Roys are. I mean, maybe not not Logan. Maybe not Logan. Mm -hmm. But um, 
I think that's also a power that that he has. And that is Iranian, I think, because most mm-hmm. of us are, you know, we, we came here with very little and then we're just trying to like make the ends meet. I mean, I guess I can go for many immigrants. And so there's a little bit of that in there. And, and you know, I, I went to a, a Indiana University and there was a huge frat system. And I, you know, mimic some of those guys that think that they know everything about everything and don't care that there is no, you know, one else on the bottom of that, you know, ladder. And so that's kind of how it all came together. And also, I really thought that they were friends. I think, mm-hmm. like, one thing that's really interesting, and I think uh, Stewie shows up in the third episode, is that you kind of see Kendall's got a friend. Do you know what I mean? And he's treating him like a friend. He's not treating him like an ex or soon-to-be ex-wife or a father that thinks he's a nobody or, or brothers and sister that thinks that... You know what I mean? He just treats him like a friend. And so that's a different dynamic. And, and, I, and, and why I think people just gravitate towards him is because... A, I think he he is one of the only people of color on the show, mm-hmm. and I think he tells Logan the truth that you know you know quote everyone fucking hates you, and and Logan hears that and takes and takes that advice and does a PR campaign in the rest of the episode. Um, you know, there's so many moments where Stewie comes in and says like, "This is stupid. You should do this," and then they do that. Um, bear hug letter um he says in episode two of season two volter's a crappy company they get rid of volter you know um it's one of those things that it's just constantly keeps going through and so yeah fascinating portrayal of a of a of a real serious amazing kind of character i love him and how does um like you mentioned stewie is one of the few people of color on the show and i think maybe the only one in that top echelon of power within yeah. that circle and it really is you're you're part of the portrayal in real life of a very rare and sort of bizarre circle of mostly white men who have so much money and so much power in different ways. And it's not just when we see the political power, the Mm -hmm. controlling of the public opinion, the media and all of that. How is that experience sort of experiencing it as portraying something that is also happening in real life? And we know it's sort of loosely based on um, the Murdoch Murdoch family. But yeah, how, how is that experience to you? It must be bizarre. It is, you know, I don't think about that. I don't think about any of that. I don't have to think about that. I, I let other people think about that. For me, this man must be brilliant at what he does. He must be powerful enough to somehow or another wheedle his way in, both in season one to, you know, um, be on the board and all of a sudden get Sandy Furness on it, and also in season, the last episode. All of a sudden now, in a weird way, he has somehow more power after this last episode, because now he has, he and his group has four board seats. <laughs> four, <laughs> you know what I mean? All of a sudden he, you have an entity here. And so I don't have to think about all of being in this circle and whatnot. I just have to just keep doing that thing and just keep going forward. You know, it's so much of that again is probably being an immigrant, you know, as, as a, as a kid growing up in this country in the eighties, you know, Iran was, 
not like the coolest of words to use. And I could tell you from many immigrants at that time period, my parents included and others around me, on, on Friday nights when all the Irunis would come to our house and I'd be walking around handing tea to everyone, you know. <laughs> uh, um, they were scared. I wish my audience could see this. You're <laughs> literally holding a tray up in the air. <laughs> um, but at the time, you know, there were people, Iranians that were taxi cab drivers that were getting killed, that, you know, that was not being reported. I mean, there's so much stuff going on. And at the time, they kind of, that immigrant group kind of, of, of specified Iranians was like, you don't have to tell people you're Iranian. You don't have to do that. You just have to do your thing. And, and it was, a, it was really sad to mention that right now, but it was also a defense mechanism because mm-hmm. we didn't want to be in trouble or getting hurt. For or, survival. It was for survival. survival yeah. And in a way, um, I kind of dare the Roys to bring up the Iranian in me because in a way, I really think that's what's kind of fascinating about him is that it doesn't define him, but he is, it is the, it is, it is his big business acumen that's really kind of put it out there. But for people that see the show that are Iranians or Middle Easterners or immigrants, they kind of see it. And for those that don't, they don't see it. So I don't even know if the Roy see it. Do you know what I mean? They just see me as a powerful entity. Um, and it is really, really rare. You know, I, I say this kind of like joke, but like, you know, when I'm talking to like my students or whatnot, it's like essentially this world, there's like 10 people that ten, there are 10 like basically white men mm-hmm. that like run the world. Like we can like parse it out in many other ways, but really down to it, it's like 10 folks they are they are, they are like the people that run the world and and those 10 folks are don't are not iranian mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not they're black not. and they're not women and they're not gay they they are they are white men um they're. and um and so having Stewie in this kind of worldview shows a, a a new power that's coming that i think is really exciting and really authentic the um you know, I can we you and I can list off twenty amazing Iranians that have started some of the biggest Fortune five hundred companies ever, from you know, um, you know, eBay to Uber to Google. I mean, like, you know, and most of those people are not defined by being Iranian; they're defined by just being amazing at their craft. And so, I think of Stewie mm. that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I think he's Iranian. Saying- but I think he's Iranian. Do you know what I mean? I, he you is. know, you know, he and I. Um, I said this recently in another interview, but I talked to Jesse about this once and I explained to him, I was like, here are the three potentials of where, if he's Iranian, of how he came to to this place. He came in the 50s, has some ridiculous oil shaw money. He came in the 70s, right before the revolution hit, you know, rich enough to get out and, you know, or he came in the 80s, um, you know, probably lower on the middle, you know, class and just got out. And... And I came in the 80s, you know, I came in the 80s, which which is a, a pocket that doesn't fit in there. And then he's kind of like, well, what, which one do you want to do? I'm like, well, I came in the 80s, so I want to do that one, but I don't want to talk about this on the show. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I just want people to like, you know, that's the beauty of succession. Really, none of us know what's going on in the set, the heads and the minds and the machinations of all these people. We really, truly don't know. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that's what I think is the genius of the show because we as audience members put our DNA onto these characters as, as if it's truth. Um, but mm-hmm. it's not. It's your version of the truth. 
Definitely. I mean, I definitely feel the Iraniness of Stuya. And but now that you were saying, I was just thinking about it. I've seen Logan up until now make anti-Semitic comments to uh, a Jewish shareholder. I've seen yeah. him making sexist or misogynistic comments, but I haven't seen him really do anything like that to Stewie yet. It's like he is sort of accepted in that circle of white, powerful men. And you, I mean, you really made him uh, blend into that circle really well. And that's just amazing. So, um, I, and I want to talk about, don't, 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 I know. You know. Until now, I said till now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I think, <laughs> I think Logan really respects Stewie. Exactly, is is what I was trying to explain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think there's a there's a there's a you know jokingly, I think Logan maybe wants Stewie as his son. I mean, he wants Kendall to be a little bit like him. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, every step of the way, Stewie has been ahead of the, the Roy's, um, and has the power over him. You know, and so I think Logan really respects that in him, and I think. You know, maybe because his wife, um, played by the uh, incredible Hima Boss, um, Marsha, seems to be Lebanese, I believe, um, mm. that there is some sort of, um, you know, past that he has on Middle Eastern folks. Hard to say. Hard to say. I mean, some of the kids have made, you know, kind of like maybe some like derogatory comments about um, Hiam's character, Marsha, but I kind of don't remember really <laughs> so many shitty things are said on the show. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I want to talk about um, your experience coming to America a little bit later, but let's also talk about Kian in mm-hmm. Love Life, which is sort of a similar character, mm-hmm. more of a millionaire, I think. He's not a billionaire. Yeah, no, he's not a billionaire. Yeah, but there's this one, um, uh, uh, not an episode, but it's like this conversation where he's he's explaining to his friend that you know eventually he wants someone to love him, but if people end up loving him for his money, that's fine too. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's yeah, horrible. it's pretty sad. I, I know, I know. I saw people really resonate with that. So talk about Kian, that experience of again playing an Iranian, a rich Iranian. Um, in this sort of weird circle that we're seeing in Love Life. And I think you did it well, well as well. Thank you, my love. Um, yeah, I mean, f- again, um, when they when Sam Boyd of, of Love Life came to me and talked about this, he said, you know, he came into this money recently. He was a literary major, just like um, uh, Marcus, played by the amazing William Jackson Harper. Um and all of a sudden he comes up with this dumb idea of untuck it, which is funny. It's like a shirt that you can wear untucked. It's a dress shirt that you can wear untucked, and he made millions off of it. Oh. Yeah. Um, it's kind of said in that first episode. And so he kind of, like, came into it. And, you know, kind of like uh, Marcus, he's trying to move towards finding a mate, finding someone in his life that can really kind of move on with and 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 um and he does some really kind of like desperate he like flies out at one point to um i don't know if you remember but he flies out to la and he's explaining how he went to la to try to meet the lady a famous lady and then got stood up so he flew all the way to la and they didn't want to meet with you know he's kind of like that guy that's using a little bit of his power right now to try to get laid um or try to find you know some sort of like partner and and at first, it really is heartbreaking because at first he's like, don't love me because of my money. But then, like, no one loves him because he <laughs> might not be the greatest of guys. And so, or he might just be a little bit, you know, just sad. And so then he's like, yeah, in that scene, um, he's like, well, love me for my money. You know, love me for anything, really. And you could mm-hmm. see how, like, you know, just sad and desperate the whole in- thing is, which is so unlike Stewie and so... Um, 
so more realistic when you're trying to find a mate, you know, in your early 30s, as like Kian is trying to do. Um, mm -hmm. It was important to me that he was Iranian. Um, it was important to me, and we talked about that with Sam, and I think the character's name originally was some white guy, um, and I really wanted to make him Iranian, um, and oh. Sam and HBO really kind of fought for that. Um, I didn't, they didn't have to fight for it. It just was given. Um, again, I've known Will since I was in 2007. I've done theater with him off, 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 bro. He did a Waterwell show, my nonprofit Waterwell. We toured this, this, um, the city park system doing a show about the last year of the life of Martin Luther King um, that my company Waterwell created that he was in. You know, so I've known him forever. So it's really easy to like just slide in and be his buddy. Uh, it sounds like there's all these rich Iranian men all over television and you're playing all of them. So it's <laughs> in every new. series. That's, that's a new thing. <laughs> that's great. Talk about, I know you've uh, made a point by not accepting terrorist roles. And I know that many of the roles or opportunities for Middle Easterners in Hollywood are in fact terrorism related. Talk about or why victims. you yeah. made, yeah, or victims. Uh, talk about how, why you made this decision and how it's been going saying no to these roles. I mean, I've been acting, I'm 41. I've been doing this for 20 years. So, you know, it's really easy to right now see all of the successes, but to be blunt with you, um, yeah, uh, it was very, I was maybe 25, 26, 27 when I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, when I started getting like real auditions mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, I'm not doing this. I'm just not going to do this. You know, my mom and my dad like left everything. They left language and family and money and friends. We're the only family on my mom or dad's side that's in the United States right now um, that got out. We barely got out. My brother fought in the Iran-Iraq war for two years. My other brother like came to this country when he was 16 and is the reason why we're here. Like my sister was stuck in Iran until 2003. All of these things that I'm telling you are reasons why I can't do a terrorist rule. Mm. We are so much bigger than than the point zero 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 one percent of the bad guys. You know, I, I, I often say again to students and, and, and press, I say, like, you know, there's one point seven billion Muslims. If they wanted everybody that's non-Muslim dead, everyone would be dead. There's 1.7 billion. And the reason why they don't is because they have to put food on the table. They have to get, you know, their kid from school. They have to make sure their kid goes to school. Like, they're worried about the regular things. And But if you were to turn on media, both um, in the news cycles or in, or, you know, Hollywood, you would think that ISIS or Daesh is like... 75% of the Muslim population, and it's, it doesn't even hit a percentage. It doesn't even have 1% of a population of the mm -hmm. 1.7 billion. It doesn't even have 1%. You wouldn't know that. Um, no one would know that. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and you know, Hollywood's engine, though it's, though it's a place that really resonates and wants to resonate with liberal stories, um, has got a long way to go. And that's because the people that are running Hollywood or the people that are at the top of, the, of, of Hollywood know nothing about Iran. They're not bad people. They just don't know shit about Iran. Just like you and I know probably nothing about, let's say, New Zealand, right? <laughs> we know nothing about New Zealand. But all of a sudden, you are given the task of writing a New Zealand episode for the next Law & Order. So what are you going to do? You're going to Google New Zealand, you're going to get a couple of words, and you're going to put it in, and all of a sudden, you wrote the New Zealand episode. 
<laughs> and that's what happens to our community. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not because they're bad people. They're just ignorant or don't have um, the knowledge of it. Just like people are ignorant what it means to be a black woman living in society. Like, unless you have fit into her shoes and see the struggles that a woman might go through that's, uh, uh, that's black, um, we're not going to really understand that. And so at, it was really, at the time, it was maybe like a little bit of like... Um, you know, a little bit of like middle finger in the air kind of being like, I'm doing my thing. Um, but a lot of it, it was because I didn't want, you know, to, in, in, you know, I, I wanted something that my parents that risked everything to be proud of what I'm doing. And, you know, and saying all these like ridiculous things that, that really don't fit into any of our circles, like at all, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, was just something that was, uh, you know, I didn't want to do. And, and the same with victims, I, you know, like I said to you earlier, like, you know, in those days, you know, we, there were so many, my, my mom, my dad was trying to like find a job in Iran and in America, it was like hard, you know, growing. And so with my mom and I, and every weekend there would be so many Iranian women that are coming over to our house and describing their stories. And, and those, those are, none of them are victims. None of them are taking it on the chin. And so it's important to me. Also, why I did theater for 20 years, gladly, because there was no opportunities. Um, there were some things that came up. I did a show called The Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo with Robin Williams on Broadway. I did a show called Guards at the Taj, both written by Rajiv Joseph. I've done shows, um, Middle Eastern plays and, 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 and being Palestinian and Israeli and talking about those, those worlds because they, they were the only places that were showing real depth for the MENA community, for really the people that don't have a voice. And so um, that's a big deal, you know, like that that really like defined who I was as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, now that you've mentioned it, let's talk about your family story. I'm sure yeah. our audience is specifically the audience that's interested in hearing more about the Iranian side of you. I know you were born in Iran lived there for some years, and then your family had this, as you just mentioned, interesting story of uh, immigrating to the U.S. Talk about your life as it started in Iran. Yeah, when we came to the country, um, yeah, I'll just kind of bullet point, you know, all of our family stuff. But yeah, my, my, my brothers, Omid and Amir, and I have a sister named Homera. Um, they're all much older than I am because my mom had three kids um, at a very, very young age and had me um, in the midst of the revolution and the war in 1980. Um, my brother Omid, who is an amazing anesthesiologist and a dean at Howard University in D.C., um, yeah. uh, fought in the Iran-Iraq war for a couple of years. Um, my first cousin, uh, Hamid, died in that war. Um, uh, and while that was happening, my oldest brother, Amir, um, came to the country um, for college in 1976, before the revolution. And that's how we got to the States. Um, when the revolution hit, none of, you know, um, when we were in Iran, and I was born, my brother was fighting. We, my parents were really adamant about leaving, but didn't maybe have all of the connections and the means. And so we essentially cobbled together as much as we can and got to Dubai and then Dubai or Dubai. And then um, and from Dubai, we went to um, we ended up in Chicago, me and my brother, 10 years after he moved to the country. But now all of a sudden you have these two 40s, you know, parents 
Um, my mother doesn't have a high school degree, or I don't even think she has a middle school degree. Uh, she was married so young. And my father um, didn't speak a lot of English. So now all of a sudden, you're thrown into the world of America with no kind of like means. You know, the Toman was, I mean, plummeting, as you can imagine. And so even transferring the money over was no good. And, you know, you send this money back and that, you know, it was just complicated. And and so at a very young age, I was thrust into becoming the translator of the household um, at, you know, seven, eight, nine, even though I was in ESL classes for four years. I was basically helping my parents kind of navigate, you know, what, you know, cereal is and how to get milk and also writing checks and also talking to landlords and, you know, talking to, you know, making sure we could survive. Um, again, I'm making it more grandiose than it was, but um, it was tough. It was tough. Also, remember my mom, she had three kids by the age of 18 and had me at 35. And now at 41, she's restarting her life yet again. Mm. Do you know what I mean? My age. Imagining me right now jumping and going and living in, you know, China. New Zealand. Yeah, New Zealand. <laughs> well, New Zealand, I speak English. <laughs> but imagine That's throwing true. me in, you know, somewhere in, you know, in China and being like, figure it out, dude. You know, I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail a lot. I'll tell you this right now. Um, I would not do well. Um, and so and so that kind of survival is kind of who def- what defines me, really. You know, the exterior might look very American and sound very American, but a lot of that is just survival, like we talked about earlier. And a lot of that is just, um, you know, trying to make sure that, you know, I kind of like give an opportunity for my parents. Now, luckily, my parents have a doctor brother that I've talked about. So, and they have Alva Mohandes and my brother Amir and my sister came in 2003 after we got here, um, she got here 17 years after we did and her kids are now doing really well and, and, and in Chicago. You know, it's 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 a it's a typical atypical story. You know what I mean? It's like it's like every immigrant story, but like unlike any immigrant story, with a lot of like ups, downs and 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 resilience. You know, I have a lot of projects. I have a nonprofit company that I co-founded. I teach at a high school. I am working on the Axonal Wolf. I'm in Spider-Man. I'm all of these things, but Oftentimes I get asked, like, how do you do all this? Like, how do you, how do you fucking do all this? And I kind of, you know, not smugly, but the response is like, you know, it might seem like a lot, but none of it is as hard as being an immigrant growing up in the United States. That was just harder. You know, it was just harder. You know, Um, that was a lot more difficult to me. We lived in in an immigrant community too, and I'm watching all of the immigrants from Trinidad and Taiwan, just kind of like surviving um, was crazy, man. It's like, that was hard. That I, w- that I don't wish on anyone. But I also think of it now as a privilege. Me doing anything, it's probably the same for you. Like getting, it is, over, it get, is, yeah. Getting over here, doing your thing and trying to make shit happen and, and making your own and look at you now, you know, having all this success. Like that's, that's self-made and that, that is harder than, you know, doing a bunch of projects. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. I came here, I immigrated here as an adult, but without kids, and it was hard enough, so I can't imagine when you talk about When did stories. you get here? I came here right after 9-11 in mm. 2002 and before the invasion of Iraq. That's oh how I remember God. history. But, wow, yeah. right in yeah. there. Oh, my God, right crazy time. There. 
It crazy. was crazy. It was crazy indeed. So let's talk about, and I know that's about around the time when you started Waterwell. Is that correct? Yeah, well, Your nonprofit arts and education um, company. Yeah. Arts and education. Talk about Waterworld and why you started it and that experience um, and how it's been going for two decades now. <laughs> two decades. Wow. That just made me feel old. Um, but yeah, 9-11. 9-11 happened. I was in Indiana University with my roommate and best friend, Tom Ridgely. We were big theater makers at Indiana. And we were like, why don't we do what our cloth is meant to do you make art that helps better society um which is what theater does the reason why people read romeo and juliet and they read you know aeschylus is the persians or they read raisin in the sun is because it teaches us who we are as a society and so that was our mission really and we meant that that mission doesn't was not made last year as many people might want to say this was made in 2002 and in, in our first mission statement words like responsiveness accessibility um making sure that um we are um you know being socially conscious and civic minded these are the words we were using as two 22 year olds and the reason it was was because we didn't really imagine a society or world for us that we would be like working actors. We thought mm -hmm. we'd like be actors, but we didn't know if we'd be like, and we were more interested in that. And then 9-11 happened and then that build up to that war, you know, that war that we all knew because we were all reading and being like, this is a bullshit war. Mm -hmm. This is not a real war. This is something else. And we all knew it. And so, but how do you talk about that without like picking a side and also like making it my side versus your side which is we were interested in not we were we weren't interested in that in 2002 much less now i mean that's we're we're allergic to it now so basically we started waterwell and 20 years later we are a still a civic-minded arts education company um we have um, a school that we run in midtown manhattan a public school for the Department of Education, um, where we have about 250 students. Um, uh, we have, uh, I think, 14 faculty members. We do 11 productions a year. We've graduated over 2,500 people, um, all tuition-free, completely free. Um, some of our students are stars in Marvel TV shows, and some of our students are working on making their own theater companies, and some of them are writers, and some of them are in environmental sciences. And, and so we really teach them at Waterwell on the education side, we teach them how to be a great actor, but also and a great artist, but also how to be a great citizen. We have this thing called the artist as citizen ethos, where we teach you um, how to do these things and like how to better your community, whatever that may mean to you, and how that is gonna be more impactful um, than your acting career. And then, and then if they don't believe me, we bring in Lin-Manuel Miranda and David Schwimmer and Emily Burgle and all these amazing people to tell them that's what they do with their time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and then, so that's on the education side. That's been a decade old. And the theater side, we're, yeah, about 20 years of doing theater, our, our last couple shows. Um, our shows are in the industry really considered like massive events. And, and um, one of the shows, uh, example, we did a, a, a Hamlet that was set in 2007, that was set in 1917 Tehran. And we did oh. it both in English and in Farsi. And um, the, the, uh, our Hamlet um, was the son of a huge, amazing, like um, Persian warrior and a blonde, blue-eyed foreign bride. 
And so he was living in both these worlds and the ghost of, of, of Hamlet comes back and speaks only in Farsi. And instead of thinking about it in madness and not, the rest of the play, our Hamlet was trying to become more and more Iranian. Um, and we did that show. Every audience was 50% um, Iranians, 50% Americans. The Iranians that saw the show were kind of mesmerized and, and kind of blown away by the mere fact that they've never seen anything pre-revolution to represent our people, which was yeah, mind-altering. Mind-altering. And, um, and also, some of them haven't seen Hamlet, so when Gertrude takes a drink every night, I get goosebumps. Someone would be like, no, 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 go on. <laughs> Every night. It was beautiful. And then we had Americans that never seen Iranians be regular people. And so they were, the Americans would be like, every American should see this. So those are the types of things that we do. And the, the last show that we did was called The Courtroom. You know, when all of the deportation, when all of the kids were being separated at the border, Waterwell got together and said, why don't we do something about this? So we... I asked the company to find me as many deportation transcripts as they can. We found one. I condensed all that transcript into an hour and 20 minutes. We performed those transcripts in courtrooms, including the Southern District and Judge Denny Chin, um, the great Judge Denny Chin's courtroom, performed at Thurgood Marshall's courtroom and Cooper Union. And that show, um, that reenactment called The Courtroom became um, the New York Times best show of 2019. Yeah. And it was, and, and it was patriotic and it was this, and it was showed the, 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 the failing immigration court system and what we can do about it. It had members from the Republican side come see it, Democratic times come see it. Um, we work a lot with veterans. Um, veterans came and saw that show and, and everyone was moved about how kind of American and human and scary it is and, and empathize with a Filipino um, immigrant that's being on deportation case, uh, being in a deportation case and loses with a family. Um, and, and somehow or another became uplifting and powerful. And so that's what we, that's Waterwell, man. That's the kind of stuff that we do. And along the way, we've, um, you know, meet with a lot of industry folks. We're like community organizers, you know. A lot of our shows aren't seen by like, like the theater community. They're seen like the courtroom. Every audience, there would be immigration rights advocates from every spectrum coming here. Our Rolodex is deep in that world. And, mm -hmm. and so much so that the, the great Alora Mukherjee came to our artistic director, Lee Sunday Evans, who she was the one that sued the Trump administration to, about the florist exhibits down on the border so, because they weren't getting safe, you know, sanitary means, these kids. And she got the people, the reporters and the AOCs to go down there and see what's in there. Mm -hmm. She handed Lee, our artistic director, 69 sworn testimonies of children on the border in which we made the florist exhibits, florist-exhibits.org, which is a non-political, just reciting of these children's um, experiences on the borders. And now those video testimonies are used in classrooms, they're used in um, community centers, they're used as, as real kind of tools to see what happened at, on, the, on those days. That's Waterwell. You know, and that's because the community came to us and said, do something with this. And our great Lee Sunday Evans, you know, did, you know. That is what I really do. Like, that is what I spent mm. 60 to 70% of my week doing. The acting stuff 
is amazing and I love it, but you know, it's, 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 it's secondary to all of that. Hmm. Well, you're doing a pretty good job for, Thank for you, something love, that's considered Nancy. secondary, but also what well. Um, Ariane, talk about, uh, you also did a play with Robin Williams, the Bengal tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. Yeah. yeah talk about that play. It has an interesting name and an interesting story. In 2003, when right before you got here, my sister came in 2003, so I also remember that time period very vividly um, with her two daughters and her husband. Um, Homera June, if you're listening, I love you. Um, <laughs> Hi, Homera. Oh, Salam. Um, so um, in 2003, um, when the invasion happened, this is a true story, the United States government accidentally bombed the Baghdad Zoo. And inside of Baghdad, animals started roaming the streets. And it, not only was that just chaotic, as you can imagine, but also now all of a sudden we're walking into like the wild west of the jungle in Baghdad, you know. And so two guards, true story, were, met, were sent to guard the, the, uh, the Bengal tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. And true story, they were fucking around with him and they threw him a Slim Jim, like this like you know, real kind of like, I don't know, beef jerky or whatever. And the tiger bit off the, the soldier's hand and the other soldier killed the tiger. And so the amazing Rajiv Joseph took that moment and said, well, what happens if this tiger speaks? And what happens if when he gets shot and dies, he thinks he's gonna go to heaven or hell, but no, now he's walking around purgatory, which is Baghdad 2003. And he's trying to figure out why he's not going to heaven and hell. And I play an Iraqi translator of those soldiers in which I am also, true story, um, a, 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 I used to be a topiary artist, the people that like cut the trees in your gardens for Uday Hussein's mansion. Wow. And so my storyline of Musa this Iraqi translator and Robin Williams's tiger are roaming around Baghdad trying to figure out what the fuck are we doing here? And, uh, and it's this mythical, spiritual, way ahead of its time piece of art that Robin Williams decided to sign on board with, to move to Broadway with. And the, re you know, the one story I love to tell about this is that you know he was hugely involved in the USO and Veterans Affairs. Uh, Robin was for decades, um, and 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 kind of like passed that to me as well. Um, and uh, and one night we you know there was a bunch of soldiers that saw the show you know or or active Marines that were seeing the show, and they were at the audience line afterwards waiting for a signature, and I could hear them saying like, "Thank you so much for telling our story." That's what those said. And the next day, Iraqi translators came and saw our show. And they were like, thank you so much for telling our story. So that's when you know art can really do it. Where both this extreme ideas, both of which they think that their story is being told. And they're both right. And so Robin understood that message. He and I became real dear friends and buddies. And, 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 and he was a real mentor to me and told me things that I will never forget. And I... I, 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 I you know, years later, I did a movie with Rob with um, Bill Murray and Barry Levinson directed, and Barry knows Robin, and I called up Robin. And we talked about that. You know, he was a great guy. He was just really just a, a, a mensch, as they say. Um, just really wanted nothing but to help people, and and I really, you know, he really spoke to me in a very, very deep way. Mm -hmm. 
Um, let's also talk about some of your upcoming projects. I know you have a Spider-Man project coming up soon, next month, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. And also another series, Inventing Anna, coming up early next year. Talk about um, these two. I'm excited to hear about Spider-Man. I've actually never seen a Spider-Man, <laughs> so this may be a good excuse for me good. to start. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, wow. I mean, I don't. I can't say too much about it just because you can't say anything. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm in Spider-Man. It's surreal. Like the trailer came out last night and I'm looking at this trailer and and you're like, wow, this is going to be an amazing movie. And they're like, I am in this movie. <laughs> I can't even imagine sometimes how I, I pinch myself with that. Yeah, it's it's because of the successes of Succession and, and some of these and the humans and all these other things I was doing. I got the, the distinct honor of, of being in the Marvel Universe and hopefully I'll do more after this. And so, yeah, it, I did this little indie called Spider-Man No Way Home. It comes out on December 17th and um, it's truly, um, I think, going to be a really amazing film. <laughs> I will tell yeah. you, I've told a bunch of kids in our neighborhood that, I, like, you know, when, when the trailer came out and I was in it, and there were, I finally could tell them, you could see, especially in little boys' eyes, like, a little bit of, like, you know Spider-Man? It's, like, so sweet. <laughs> especially these boys that are just, like, shocked by the idea that I could know Tom Holland himself. Um, yeah. That's uh, amazing. And then, and then what inventing, about inventing Anna? Anna, yeah. Inventing Anna, very privileged. Um, Shonda Rhimes' first series that she wrote after doing Bridgerton um, is called Inventing Anna. And I played, you know, Todd Spodick, which is a true story about um, a, a, a young 26-year-old. She's often known as the fake German heiress. She basically told everyone that she was a German heiress, you know, basically swindled hundreds of thousands of dollars to make a club. And it was all a lie. And but she somehow or another is loved and adored, and um, I play her lawyer. And so Shonda, uh, you know, I'm you know one of the I am the male lead of Shonda's new series. So yeah, and it stars the incredible uh, Julia Garner from Ozark, who gives a you know tour de force performance, and Anna Klumsky um, from Veep and My Girl um, is also in it, and myself and Laverne Cox and Anna Devere Smith and Jeff Perry and, 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 and on and on and on, and Rebecca Henderson and um, uh, Kyle Beltran, all these amazing actors. Um, and so, yeah, that comes out in February. I think you're going to hear about it because I think Netflix is excited about it. Um, so, yeah, that's I'm doing that. <laughs> <laughs> crazily and um and then you know in the midst of all that i mean i'm sure your listeners are like baba village couldn't get tamu i mean i can't say cafe. but um but i also wrote and directed the first ever short form thriller called the accidental wolf starring mm. the great kelly o'hara um we invested, we, we, we independently produced that. It stars Laurie Metcalf and Sonny Ayan and um, Marsha Stephanie Blake and Kelly O'Hara and, and Judith Light and everyone else. And basically everyone in the theater community. And I wrote and directed the season one produced by the great Damon Olia. And um, what happened after that is we got um, an Emmy nomination and then we got it. We made a second season, and then the pandemic. And it's also a show about a hunt for an Ebola vaccine. Mm. And so we got acquired by Topic. Topic are the people that made the movie Spotlight, and 
have a new movie coming out called Spencer, and they bought the show, and season two of that comes out on uh, December 30th on all major platforms, and I wrote and directed everything, and you should definitely watch it, because it's got a lot of Iranian I influence. I should, yeah, yeah I haven't. I've actually, I'm up to date with my succession and love life. I'm looking forward to Spider-Man and inventing Anna, but I should catch up on Accidental Wolf. Let me yeah, make I will make sure to get you, uh, you know, in the industry, there are links that can be sent. I'll get you some links, but you should <laughs> okay. totally check it out. I mean, Season one ends with a massive um, gugush song that I think uh, kind of like <laughs> yeah I think it really like strikes and it's about it's about um, it's about feminism the way that I learned it you know as an Iranian male from my feminist parents um, it's about um, white privilege um, before that was a buzzy word mm-hmm. um, um, it was a it's kind of about the me too movement before the me too movement it was kind of, and it's also about an Ebola vaccine and how to you know live in this post truth world and all those things resonate in the midst of all this and luckily enough we have the right people to kind of like help us ship you know get this out there and we just finished shooting season three two weeks ago oh amazing yeah. Well, I look forward to receiving that link and uh-huh, catching up on uh-huh. Accidental no, Wolf. No worries. So let's. I want to ask you a couple of political questions. We talk a lot of politics on this show, Please. so I'm glad we didn't talk too much politics in this one. This is a great break. But um, I know you are doing some community work with Afghan refugees. Talk about that. Um, and then I want to also talk about U.S.-Iran relations after. Sure. I have, you know, Waterwell works a lot with veterans. The Afghan refugee situation, the SIV situation is a fiasco. It's it's an absolute tragedy of how that all kind of unveiled itself. Um, the veteran community came out in droves in protection of these Afghans that are now have a bounty on their head from the Taliban. And, um, and we had to watch unbelievably horrific images on the news of children being passed over barbed wire. Um, Mm. for people that are considered by the military as veterans that Mm. have tried to help um, defeat the Taliban, that have tried as much as they can to, uh, you know, build a society uh, in Afghanistan, um, to give women a chance to go to school. And all of a sudden, you know, um, the American policies kind of abandon ship. And now all of a sudden you have all of these Afghan veterans that are in this country trying to figure out what the hell to do. And so because of the great Paul Rykoff of IAVA and Matt Zeller also of IAVA, I got a chance to go down to Fort Dix last weekend and and do very little work. So I don't, I don't want to like, oh, oh, there are real people on the ground right now that are doing, you know, the share, the just heroic work, both on the American side and the Afghan side, on former military side, CIA side. I mean, everyone is trying to do heroic work down there in really kind of like dire situations. And so... I could translate a little bit, you know what I mean? I can help with people understanding. You know, someone asked me when I was there, um, Mm -hmm. you know, they didn't realize. They're like, you keep saying my kids are going to learn English, but how? They're Mm -hmm. 9 and 10, how? And then I said in Farsi, like... Yeah, she has to ask me ESL. to you know, in these schools, there's like ESL programs that will help you do that, and you could see a relief on their face because what the? How would they know? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? How would they know how society here works? And so um, 
And so, and it's also really powerful and uplifting. And so, you know, the best of America, I mean, there's a real opportunity to show the world that like the military and then these Afghans and, and us in the middle here can like really empower everyone that we can build something together um, and be on the right side of this. And so, you know, if I can amplify that and bring some, you know, some jackets and some, you know, hats and shoes and, and men's underwear. Um, they need a lot of men's underwear, women's bras and belts uh, at Fort Dix for anyone that's mm. listening that wants to send something over. Um, so yeah, you know, I do very little. I'm just trying to, you know, see what I can do. And maybe maybe in the future, Waterwell can go down. In the, you know, in at Fort Dix, there's 13,000 Afghan refugees living there. Wow. Um, 10,000 in barracks and about 3,000 in tents. Down mm. in Quantico, down in Virginia, they're all intense. They're so this all, is all in a military base. All in military and bases, yeah. Because that's 11, what I'm hearing. That yeah, in different parts of the country, they're so far on military bases, and then later on they will be resettled. You know, yeah, but even the, the resettling land. process is is slow. I mean, again, it seems like we should have all this figured out, but you know, we got out of there mad quick. I mean, we just like right. left. And so right. now all of a sudden we are trying to figure out as a society of how to do this. So, so a bunch of NGOs are getting involved and trying to find resettling and also telling them like if you leave, they're like if you have a cousin here and you go to your cousin's house and you leave this military uh, outfit, you are no longer given the benefits. And so they have to know what they're, you know, they have to be mm. like very careful of how to do this and navigate this. And also you have uh, integration systems that need to be put in place. You have to talk about how to get their kids the proper gear, how to teach them English how to get them employment opportunities, how to get some of these people that have, as you and I know, with many immigrants in our lives, that you might be a doctor in Iran, but that doesn't automatically mean you're a doctor mm -hmm. in the United States of America. You've got to kind of exactly. like figure that shit out again, you know? And so mm -hmm. there's a lot to be done here um, and, and a real opportunity to show um, the humanity that, that, that many of us have and... and um, so I'm going to do my very, 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 very small little part. Mm -hmm. And I like to, that I'm seeing the Iranian-American community is actually activated and helping, you know, we speak the same language as the Afghan community. Of course, the Afghan-American community is at the forefront, but I've seen a lot of Iranian-Americans also helping with language skills, lawyers are helping, and NGOs and whatnot. And so it's great to hear, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, y Iranians, you know, even though we had very little means, Nagar, at her house growing up in the United States, what Iranian parent do you not know that wasn't willing to help someone? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? All the time. We had nothing. And all of a sudden, you know, people would be coming over and having food. And my mom would make food. It's just like always trying to put someone else in front of them. Do you know what I mean? And so I think that's in her cloth. Good thoughts, good words, good deeds, you know? Indeed, indeed. So let's um, talk about U.S. and Iran. I know sure. your love for Iran and Iranians, and there was this brief moment of hope um, during the Obama years when negotiations were happening and the JCPOA. And, you know, some people even thought that there may be a resumption of diplomatic relations at some point when the Cuba um, yeah. um, side happened, but then the Trump years happened and, and a lot of that changed, uh, even the JCPOA is no longer really as it was. What do you think, um, will happen? There's a new president here at the white house, Joe Biden. 
with new visions and obviously a new team in Iran. But how do you see U.S.-Iran relations in, in the near future? I don't think, sadly, I think that what happened, the negotiations, which were those glimmer of hope that happened in those Obama, Obama years, I don't think we're going back to those days. I don't think there is... The, the, I don't think Biden and, and the, the, this administration has the um, political capital for that, um, bluntly, cynically. Um, I think our, the new Iranian president, I think, is trouble beyond trouble. And so I, think, I don't think he's someone that we can trust. So it's a real kind of um, standstill right here. And it's sad to say that because I know in, in even in my own family, I'm sure probably in yours as well, everyone's got a different opinion of how we should kind of like deal with this. Some people are like, fuck it, war. Like, let's just go get rid of these guys and come out and see what happens on the uh, opposite mm -hmm. end. And some people are like, let's go through diplomatic channels. And some people are screaming at this rooftop and some people are screaming at that rooftop. And, and to me, I feel... Um, The only hope that I have is that I know that the Iranian people that are living there are in seeking are seeking a better future. And I know that they are, especially so many of them, 65% of them are my age and under and mm -hmm. and they're year five of unemployment and they're and they're they're now on their third kid that that bubble is going to burst in a way that I think is what I hope is the most organic way of doing this I do not believe in U.S. or Western powers meddling in Iran I don't have any interest in that I don't trust Western powers to do that um, I think if Afghanistan and Iraq or Syria are three examples, and Israel are three examples of, 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 of why I believe that, I would use those as, an, as shining examples, um, each of which someone came in, got some sort of like bounty, essentially, <laughs> got some sort of money, and then left. Um, and, and I'm not trying to be cynical about that. I think that's what happens in the Middle East. And I think that's mm -hmm. been, you know, you know, um, been happening for generations. So I don't believe in that. Um, uh, I do believe in diplomacy. I think it's hard to be diplomatic with a government in Iran that is, um, you know, just a br brutal regime. You know, how do you trust them? And, and on their end, you know, they're like, well, every four years, why would I trust you guys? Like, what? every four <laughs> years, you're going to come, someone else is going to come in and You know, if you're going to blow it up every four years, why the hell would I do that? So it's a real predicament. And um, my, my, my real honest hope is that the people of Iran will, will um, be the ones that make this happen. I'm really empowered by the Iranian youth. I'm really empowered that many of these Iranians that are now in their 20s Forget, you know, Jumhur Islami 1979. Forget Iran. They don't know anything about that. They're like, that mm. was your people's thing. That was my dad's <laughs> thing. I'm like, I have nothing to do with that, you know. And, um, and, and many of them were born post 9-11. They don't have any relationship with this government. You know, um, and Iranians, though many are religious, are not like the most like religiously devout people that we've ever met. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I mean, kind of the opposite. Um, no, that's true. That is very true. Actually, I had I once had this Turkish friend tell me, you know, in in Ramadan, 
when you go around Turkey, everyone is fasting. In Ramadan, when you go around Iran, you can't find people fasting. No. Everyone is eating. It's like, what is happening to you? But on a, on a comparison level, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are some religious folks there, obviously. I'm not trying to talk about that. Of course, of course. But the vast majority of people are like Christians in America. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? You're like, I'll have your friends. They're like, oh, I'm Christian. You're like, all right, tell me something about it. And they're like looking at you, Gige, like, uh, (laughs) Jesus died on the cross? Question mark? (laughs) They don't know anything about it. Just like half of Iranians don't know anything about, you know, Islam. I mean, really, truly, they don't know anything about it. And so... um, I, I'm, I, I believe that that will be our future, is this, this youthful group that's kind of like, I don't know what my parents and grandparents did, but that shit's done. And I mm-hmm. have a much different, you know, opportunity here. So um, that's my answer to that. I mean, I, 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 it's long and winded, but I don't have like a, I don't think I'm hearing right now, like a very clear path outside mm-hmm. of the people. Mm-hmm. That's what gives me the biggest hope. Um, Diplomacy, I just don't think, I don't know. I don't think Biden's got the political power to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let's hope for, I know, I know. Yeah, I I actually, I agree with you. Um, I'm cautiously pessimistic (sighs) about Mm. this this return to the JCPOA, but let's see what happens. And hopefully, as you said, the power lies with the people of Iran and hopefully change is something that can happen within and instead of being enforced yeah. from the outside. Well, on that note, Ariane, I want to thank you so much Aww, for thank you. joining the Iran podcast. It was fascinating. I can talk to you all day. Yeah, uh, same. Yeah. Same. Um, so I'm going to let you go. But again, I want to encourage our audience to look out for obviously catch up on succession and love life. If you haven't watched like me, I'm very up to date and look out for Spider-Man coming up in December and inventing Anna, the TV series coming in February and obviously accidental wolf that I'm going to be receiving a link for. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, And thanks to our audience for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran podcast. You can also support us by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast. Until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.